Good morning. Welcome back to the Sunday Forum. It's so great to see everyone here, and welcome to all of you who are joining us online. I'm thrilled that you're here with us. Um, quick reminder for those of us who are in the room, um, if you have a question towards the end when we open it up, will you please come and use the microphone? It helps to include our folks who are online and it helps to make the room accessible and the conversation accessible for those who have assisted hearing devices. So please, please use the microphone. You can't just yell into the room, please. Thank you. Let us pray. God of grace, we pray for the incarcerated, for those who are victims, and for our systems of justice. Teach us to treat people with the love and mercy that you show to everyone by your living example. Amen. So this morning, we have Jaquel Clemens, who is here, and she is the first director of the City of Atlanta's Office of Violence Reduction. It was a newly created office, I think, last fall? Yeah, last fall. Um, and so she is tasked with developing a strategic plan and coordinating programs to reduce and prevent violence. And she comes to us with a lot of experience. She previously served um, in Brooklyn, New York, but I'll leave that up to her to share with you a little bit about her experience there. But please help me to welcome Jaquel Clemens. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm so happy to have this conversation. Jaquel is a friend from New York, um, and she, I met Jaquel through Kavi, Kings Against Violence Initiative in Brooklyn, where she developed and led the organizational, organization's public health strategies addressing violence and trauma. Now, the task she has in Atlanta is an enormous one, so if we just invited Jaquel here to pray for her in her office, <laughs> I feel like enough. that would be enough, but yes. um, if you could all put that on your prayer list. Um, and what a worthy um, task to take on. She brings enormous experience to this space. Um, so I'm really honored to welcome her here and to welcome Thank her you. here, um, hopefully for, some, for a long time of friendship and working together with this congregation. So Jaquel, let's start with this because the work you're taking on is so um, intimidating. Um, yeah. And I think public health and how that connects to violence um, is also, it's a, it's a big topic. Um, so let's start with who you are. Tell, yeah. tell us about yourself, tell us your story. Okay. Um, well, first, thank you, Reverend Lenny. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I also would like to thank Elizabeth for um, your hospitality and for just being really open to this conversation. So I, um, I'm from New Orleans, so I'm a Southerner and born and raised. And I know that today is like the day of all days for Atlantans and people who are from New Orleans. The Saints are playing here. And so do not hold it against me when we win this game. Okay, all right? That's not reducing violence. Okay, yeah. all right. I know, I'm sorry, couldn't resist. 
Um, but um, I'm from New Orleans, born and raised in the city. I was born in the, um, in the city's third ward um, where my grandmother was like really, you know, she was a business owner and she was really proactive in the community. And um, no issue was too large or too small for her mm -hmm. to take on. Um, she really used her power as a business owner to support those who were less fortunate. I come from a really big family where my grandmother, you know, like unofficially adopted others. And so um, I have about like 13 aunts and uncles, 10 who were like my biological aunts and uncles, and another three that were people like my grandmother raised. So like my, um, my duty to serve and to be in community with others and to support others really come from her. Um, I'm also like, I was, you know, my background is in public health. I went to Clark Atlanta University here and, and went to New York for graduate school where I really just got involved in activism around health issues and social determinants of health. And in that time that I was in New York, I lost one of my really good friends to gun violence where this was a young woman who I went to Clark Atlanta with and she um, was shot by a stray bullet. And then um, that, kind of like started getting me interested in, in how gun violence plays out in communities of color, particularly around like how could something like this happen to someone who, we, who isn't involved in anything like criminal and you know, she was on her way to pursue her PhD. I just, I wanted answers. And so I started doing like some research about the public health approach to gun violence. It was an emerging science at the time and not many people were doing work around like gun violence and public health and looking at gun violence from a public health perspective. And so um, my young mind was just trying to reconcile how, how could this happen? How could this happen to someone who like, if you knew Shawnee, um, you would know that like, you know, she was a saint. She was really like the person who kept the, my, my friend circle on the straight and narrow when we were in school. And so like, I just wanted to make sense of it. But then it was a thing that would happen again and again and again mm -hmm. as I grew up and as I became a young adult where I was losing people around me mm -hmm. to gun violence. And so in about, I wanna say maybe 2015, my friend, Dr. Robert Gore, um, who also went to Morehouse College, was an, is an emergency medicine physician at a busy hospital, it's the equivalent of Grady in Brooklyn. And Dr. Gore reached out and was like, Jaquel, like I know you're in Atlanta. I was here working at Mercy Care at the time. And he was like, listen, like I really wanna do something around gun violence and public health. And like working in the hospital, what I'm seeing is just, it's unrehensible. Like I can't, like I can't continue to serve in this way and not do anything. And so I joined with Dr. Gore at Kings Against Violence Initiative in Brooklyn. So I left Atlanta, went to New York and, um, began working to build out a public health approach to gun violence for Brooklyn and use that work to you know, scale the organization. Reverend Winnie was at Trinity Wall Street at the time and we were having conversations with, with funders, with whoever would listen about, like, about healing, about the opportunity for healing, about the fact that like, we were talking about gun violence but we were not talking about it from a trauma-informed approach. We weren't talking about it from a restorative report, approach and that it was really just rooted in like the criminal justice side of this and we wanted to turn that conversation on its head. 
And during that time, we met Reverend Winnie, um, and Trinity was one of our actual seed funders. Um, they were getting, they were preparing to do a lot of vanguard work around, like these, like how do we enter into these restorative spaces? Um, while working there, I managed to lead some really amazing legislation that led to funding for, for the small organizations that were doing the work around gun violence in communities. Um, we scaled the organization. I then like came back to Atlanta like three a year before COVID. Um, yeah, like working remotely <laughs> to, to take care of my dad. And um, was working remotely and, and supporting the organization, this opportunity became available. And so I, during that time, married, had a baby. Um, I'm a mom of three wonderful little girls. Reverend Winnie and I are over here, was over here laughing earlier about how ingenious one of my, my oldest girls are and the type of snacks that draw them in. But um, I'm a mother. I am um, a servant. This is service work for me. I feel like this is my mission. And I'm really excited to be leading like this Herculean task of building power here in Atlanta around how do we not only reduce violence, but how do we come to the center again? So. Amazing, amazing. Um, Mercy Care was here, is that right? Yeah. So, so get this, Jaquel Clemens used to work in this building um, in what is now the Sunday school floor. Yeah. Is that right? And the, the t and it was the, in the basement. Yeah, so in Sunday school, school and um, where Crossroads is mm -hmm. um, with Mercy Care. So it was here. St. Luke's is happy to claim everybody. Um, I think we get to we get to claim Jaquel as well. Yeah, we um, do. Which is amazing. Um, so let's let's talk about what restorative justice is. Yeah. We I want I want us okay. to understand that. So um, we're all I think well aware of um, of the issue of gun violence in this city mm -hmm. and violence in this city and crime in this city. That's that's in the news all the time. Yeah. Um, what does it What does it mean to think about restorative justice in light of the kind of violence we have in our city? Um, I love RJ. I love restorative justice. I, when I think about restorative justice, I think about it being a practice. I think of it as just like a way of being. Um, I think that when I consider what it means to be restorative, it means to, um, to consider the ways that we undo the harm and I honestly feel like it's about creating, restoring, and sustaining relationships with the same sort of grace that God extends to us. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I think that it's a really wonderful practice and a really beautiful way of being in community with each other. Um, I think, you know, when we oftentimes think about re restorative justice, it's often about like, you know, a victim and the driver of, of violence or the driver of harm. Um, but I think that it's a way of just like being in community with each other. And so when I think about the work that's ahead for me, um, what really comes to mind is that we have that we have to resist being victims and in judgment of, you know, that we have to really consider um, the type of ways that we would want to be held and supported. And you know, it's still, this is probably a little woo-woo for government, but in my role, I really feel like part of what I'm being charged and tasked to do is to help figure out, like, how do we bring healing 
into the spaces where a lot of harm has been done. So maybe to help me think about this, tell me if I'm getting this wrong. No. At, what I remember about Kavi, you and Dr. Gore, is that there were uh, circles, circles of mm -hmm. young adults who were from the communities of these young people that he kept just finding it as an emergency. So the way he would describe that is he was in there just repair, you know, patching up people's bodies to go back out and be shot again yeah. or to shoot again, right? They were in these, just in communities where there was so much violence happening. And so you all went into those schools and just created circles yeah. of just a whole bunch of kids. Yeah. And then exactly. basically wrapped around them while remain, like while building skills and relationship with them. So talk, yeah. tell us about so that. So the, the process of healing circles is really like this slow and intentional listening, right? And like the, the, the slow and intentional listening, and we would do that with young people, with families, who've experienced gun violence after a violent incident, we would go into communities and host healing circles with community members. And it was a space for people to process what, what oftentimes doesn't get processed in community with each other. We process, process these things in silos by ourselves with maybe someone else, but we never do it together, right? And so the work that we did in New York that I hope to also bring here, and we've done some healing circles here, is to host circles and use circles as a space where we get to like be slow and intentional and thoughtful and listen and hear. And not just hear from um, you know, people who have been directly impacted by violence and that, they, that, that they're the person who experienced it themselves, but that like people who've been exposed, people who are bystanders, people who are just feeling it just because they, they love where they live. I think that like those types of conversations are really important because it gives us an opportunity to hear different perspectives. It gives us the opportunity to check in with each other, which we oftentimes don't do. And in those spaces, what we uncovered so much was that there was so much deeply entrenched trauma that was happening with our kids at a very young age that we weren't addressing. And that trauma was um, sometimes simply from exposure, you know? Um, we talk about violence from a public health perspective. And so if you're talking about, if you think about violence as a contagion, it's something that passes, right? And so like the exposure, like what we see on TV, what, we, what kids are witnessing, the mental gymnastics around navigating environments so that you can keep yourself safe was a real thing for so many young people. And um, I'm thinking about something Elizabeth and I just was talking about, about the brain science of that, right? Like, you know, what happens to a developing mind when this is something that you are repeatedly exposed to? Um, like, and then it's not processed. And so we would use circles as our way to kind of like bring young people to the middle and kind of bring them into a communal space where there were people who actually like just sat with them and listened. It wasn't an opportunity to like react. It was a space where like if a young person decided that like today I don't, I don't feel like engaging. And a lot of the young people who we engaged with were the ones who, you know, had one, one um, principal say to me that his school was a bi-directional feeder for Rikers, Rikers oh. Island. Oh my God. And um, this was my favorite school. The kids in there were amazing. 
They were totally responsive to the restorative process that we put into place. They loved the circles. They loved coming to the circles when there was a conflict that they couldn't resolve and they knew that a fight was brewing. They would bring it to us and ask us to have conversations with them about how to mediate that conflict. You know, it's a space that I think allows for people to sharpen their social emotional skills, those skills that we kind of like, you know, don't really foster and develop in schools. But it, it's, a really, it's a really harmonious space. I think that it's a, it was one of the first spaces that we would use to kind of create community. And then we would think, we would say, okay, so this is a circle and this is your first circle. And if there is no harm that you're causing here, we now want you to think about the concentric circles that surrounds this circle. What does it mean to not cause harm in the school? What does it mean to be a messenger of not causing harm in your community? And that, that was changing. It shifted so much in so many of our kids. Okay, so one that's very beautiful. So let me, I'll ask unbeautiful questions. Um, <laughs> and I have two. You can answer them how you want to answer them. One, um, is there any impact of that circle, or does the circle include the person who's caused the harm? And then two, like to that point, like the thing we measure is harm, mm -hmm. and you're in government now, yeah. right? Yeah. And public health people are notorious for how well they measure. Yeah, um, what, measure. What, what do you measure in this kind of work? Ah, that's a great question. So like, yes, first question. Sometimes in those circles will be the person who has caused harm. Um, absolutely. Sometimes you will be intentional about bringing the, pe the person who has caused harm into those spaces. Um, especially like in school settings where there's like, you know, we're trying to avoid a kid being pushed out of the school. And by pushed out, I mean like being suspended or transferred to another school where their safety is yet again changed and shift. Um, so we would bring them to those circles and, um, and we would use that as like an opportunity to avoid suspension. So. Yes, we would bring, and there, there are lots of models of restorative justice where um, victims and drivers of violence are oftentimes in those circles. And I think that there are some spaces here in Atlanta that's actually using RJ in that way. And then in terms of measuring, um, you know, we, like this, this data question oftentimes come up. I think that like for government, you know, we use crime stats to kind of talk about the ways that, um, that we reduce violence. But there's a lot of things that I think we, we have to consider, especially as we build a model for like gun violence intervention strategies. I think we have to also count what we, what we prevent mm -hmm. and what's preventable. Um, in our schools and in the spaces that I've been in, traditional measures for, for how do we measure if we're successful or not just did not work. Like a lot of the times like we were, mostly interested in just trying to ground a young person mm. and to help them um, to, to achieve some sense of stability around their emotional state so that they're not always heightened, mm. right? And so like, how do you measure that? Mm. Like we ha I've worked intensely with students at SUNY Downstate School of Public Health to find measures for sense of safety, mm. sense of self-worth, I was really interested in increasing um, young people's ability to partner with adults, um, to be in partnership, and that's not, that was a 
kind of a foreign concept in the system that was very hierarchical, right? Schools is like, you listen, you're told what to do. We don't hear you, we don't see you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we, we wanted to measure in a different way. And so a lot of what we looked at were not like the academic gains, how many students graduated. Like that was a win. Like we were really excited about kids who were like achieving academic gains, but that was the least of our concerns. Mm -hmm. Really what we wanted to know was that like, we, we um, increase the young person's ability to think about their emotional state, that we um, were able to convince them that their long-term thinking needed to be a part of the equation when they were being approached with conflict. Mm -hmm. And so um, we, you know, like in science, there, there's all these like different measures that has to be like tested and validated. And so we tore apart a lot of those measures and found the things that, that resonated with us and used that to measure success as opposed to, um, opposed to like the things that are traditionally measured. And like I am pushing for here in Atlanta for me to, to be able to look at some of our gun violence intervention strategies as the prevention things that we're collecting and doing as also measures of success. In addition to crime stats, that's important, but there are other things that we have to consider as well. So just so for, to make sure I understand this correctly, so the, the things you wanna measure are basically implementing the program itself mm -hmm. would be something that you Yeah. So your program um, is kind of, kind of seems based on the idea that, that trauma impacts how you how you think about what your choices yeah. are. Um, and I was in a conversation a few days ago with some friends who were saying, you know, trauma is the most overused word we have. Like all mm -hmm. of us are, someone, yeah. someone said they almost hit a deer and mentioned it at the next stop. They you know, like went to a, the, the grocery store, mm -hmm. almost hit a deer, go to the grocery store, a little rattled, said to the person at the counter that they were a little rattled, apologized, almost hit a deer. That poor child said, oh, you're traumatized. I would have taken the day off, <laughs> right? Um, like that's not quite what trauma is, right? Like yeah. life is full of hard things. Right. Help us understand a little bit what, what trauma is and yeah. what these responses are that, that, that you're trying to offset or change. Um, I think that like, I think that in, in regards to gun violence, I think we, oftentimes underestimate um, adverse experiences and, and the, the impact that it has on brain development, right, Elizabeth? And I think that violence, neglect, accumulated harm um, leads to like this excessive activation, right? Like we're, like again, like we're heightened and we're responsive and we're, we're reacting. And I think that that's trauma, you know? And I think that the implications of it has um, far-reaching impact that we don't um, sometimes want to reckon with. And that, that impact can impact our health, it can impact opportunities, it can impact you know, conditions in our communities. And I think that that's what I'm contending with, yeah. right, in my role. Um, I think that, you know, we really, um, we might be overusing it, you know, but I think that is a real thing um, that has just gone unaddressed for so long. And like so many of our like systems, I mean, there's, there's a scientist at Emory who is looking at ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. And he has this, there's a map on his, iprice, I-P-R-I-C-E dot O-R-G. It's at Emory, but, the, he has a map, and this map 
um, goes from a gradient of light blue to light dark black. And you know, if you go on this website and you pull up um, this grid, this map, it shows you Atlanta. And on the map, it, it shows you like where there's been adverse childhood um, experiences. And you know, when I think about like trauma, I think about there's little traumas, there's middle traumas, and there's like really big traumas, right? And this map, the gradient of this map was like the Atlanta area. So like the darker color was like, you know, that there was big traumas, right? And lot, lots of trauma. This map was pretty much covered in like, like from like maybe like a blue to like a dark black, most of it. Everywhere. 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 So for trauma, do you mean like, like what is he like? Poverty, abuse Poverty, in the home. Yeah, I violence mean, around you. Like, what? I mean, aces could be anything from like. I mean, adverse childhood experiences are aces. They they use this this scoring, this measure in public health, to to determine like how how much adversity you've experienced in your life, right? And so um, it can be anything from like you know experiencing your parents separate or a move. I mean, I know moving for me was traumatic. Was it for you? <laughs> right? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> In the middle of a pandemic. Um, but I mean, the pandemic, right? Like, I mean, so it can be like so many different things. Like I said, there's big traumas, little traumas, you know. And But this map is pretty much covered. Mm-hmm. And what it, what it, but like for me, it brought to the front of mind for me, and was a real aha moment. This is maybe two weeks ago. It was like, oh my goodness, like all of our systems are not responding in a way that supports this type of trauma, yeah. right? Like the way that we ask questions, mm-hmm. the way that we, you know, um, do an intake or triage a patient, like we have no idea like what type of things. And I think that like we look at each other and we're just kind of like, oh, the kids are all right, everybody's okay, right? And with no real like regard for like what someone's experience might be. And so I think that, um, I think, you know, like what's the lift for me is kind of like figuring out like as a system, what's a whole government response to that so that we can reduce violence. And, you know, it's not the traditional ways of enforcement. And um, I think that, like, gun violence in general um, tends to be, like, a divisive topic. I think that the solutions to it also kind of, like, can have some intense division there as well. But I think that, you know, like, we can't talk about how gun violence is happening in our city and not talk about the harm and not talk about the root causes and not, not think about the way that trauma is impacting that. And I don't want to put you on the spot, so don't answer if you don't want to. Okay. Would you, um, is access to guns something we can, the, the control of access to guns um, something that impacts? Could that potentially impact the kind of gun violence we see? I definitely think so. Yeah, and I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to let you all ask questions in just a second, so get ready. Um, so, if, if I if you if I take this map that you've just described, and I haven't seen it, um, it makes sense to me that if I just if I just counted COVID and nothing else, 
that, um, that we're a rattled people, mm -hmm. right? Nothing else, if everything else was equal. Um, how do you begin to take on, so this isn't just that there's certain neighborhoods where there's a lot of violence. This is part of what's interesting in Atlanta, that it's not as, um, in New York, I, I didn't live in neighborhoods where I had to worry about gun violence. You could do mm -hmm. that. Yeah. I don't know that that's true in this city in quite the same way, which is fascinating. Um, but how, how, do, how do you think about your work with, the, with, with the, what you've just described? Yeah. You know, I think that um, we're all grappling with like what safety looks like. Yeah. But I do think that there are some communities that are grappling in a very different way. Yeah. You know, um, I'll just speak to like, I, I started to tell you this, Reverend Winnie, um, but there was this young man who had approached me at a vigil for a young, there was a shooting, and um, you all may have heard of it, I'm sure it was on the news. It was a six-year-old, seven-year-old little girl who was shot at Rose Burney Park in Mechanicsville. Mechanicsville has like, it's like one of the, most amazing communities. Like, I mean, it's like you talk about familiar faces, the same people you see all the time. Dunbar Rec Center is there. I really enjoy like being there because there's a cure violence program that's there. This particular intervention that's happened at Chris 180 is really great. And like the community members are amazing. But when that, this question is making me think about that community right now because um, there was a young man that I met at a vigil. His name was T Rock, Terrence. Um, Terrence, I met him the first time at a, a community mural. Like they were putting a mural up in their community. I think environmental design, doing things in the community is a great way to kind of like come back gun violence in the community. Like when people can take pride in where they live. Um, so I went to this event that this group had did and I met him there and he lost his son like maybe four days. I think he said it was like four days after that. T-Rock was at the park the day that that shooting happened, right? And he saved that little girl's life. He's like an unsung hero. Nobody talks about what he did, but he essentially, like, the ambulance couldn't make it to the field. He picked her up and brought her to the ambulance. I saw him at our vigil, or at the vigil for the people who passed, and the community rallied to just say that they, they, they want peace and they want to make sure that there's things that, like this that's not happening. <coughs> And he was like, listen, you need a foot soldier, I got you. Like, I really want to do this work with you, right? T-Rock was murdered this week. Oh. And wow. I was just like, really struggling with like, how? How does this happen? Mm -hmm. Like, it's so, I mean, like, he lost his son, he saved this little girl, and then he lost his life. And I'm thinking about him this morning. I'm thinking about the people who have been like trying to pull him out of the life that he was in. And I don't know the, the circumstances of like how he died. And, and for me, it doesn't really matter. But what I know is that this was um, a young man who like, who wanted to do something different, who wanted to like, you know, work at, come to the, the brave and bold um, call of, of being a violence interventionist. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he lost his life. And so I say that because I know that like, there's communities that 
certainly it's still in like yeah. the the brunt of gun violence and um, and and threats to their safety. Yeah. And I know that there's other communities that are like experiencing crime and violence in a different way. And and I I can't help but talk about like how disproportionate it yeah. is. But like I know we're all experiencing it, right? Like I mean I worry about my own safety, my kids' safety. I'm a mother, you know, an aunt. So like you know these things are real. But I think that there are definitely some communities that are experiencing this in the more disproportionate way. And so my my work first is to make sure that like those communities, like you know, you, that we stop the bleed. Mm. Yeah. That we stop the bleed there yeah. and that we do the work there. But simultaneously, there's multiple pots to stir, right? And so there's things that I think that we can do in terms of like, you know, there's so many assets that we have in terms of institutions and each other, people, right? Like how do we build on our own empathy? Mm-hmm. How do we have like conversations with ourselves about like, you know, like I have to check my my privilege oftentimes. Like I live in a nice, cushy neighborhood in DeKalb County. My kids are able to attend private school. So like I have to check my privilege sometimes at the door and say, hey, you know, like again, you can't be victim and judge. You know, like do I want this to end? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like I have to lend some understanding to like why it's happening, why the T rocks of the world are dying, and and our in our communities are being ravaged. Communities like Mechanicsville being ravaged with gun violence, and you know it's um, it's a hard task sometimes. But I think that. Um, you know, it's it's something that I have to reconcile with often. It's that like, you know, like where do I where do I focus my attention? Where do I begin? Well that that image that you have of stirring multiple pots, you only have two arms that I mm-hmm. can see. Yeah. Um, so That's so fine. again, yeah, two more questions that you can decide how you want to put together. One is um tell us about your team. So who are you working oh. <laughs> with? But then the second one, I know, because there's I think that might be a quick answer. The second would be um you you have and you've both moved legislation. You've written it. You've seen it pass, right? You've moved legislation, and you've also built programs. Yeah. Um, h- how do you see your work in the next year in those two spaces? Yeah. Um, so my team. Well, right now it's me, and I have a part-time deputy director. His name is Dr. Michael Cleary. He's an emergency medicine doctor at Grady. He's wonderful, and. Um, I've been lucky enough to be partnered with um, Benjamin Kahardi, who leads justice initiatives for the city of Atlanta. He's um, a policy director there. And so I just, and then Megan Sparks, who is like over strategic initiatives. And so the four of us together, like, are conspiring to do some really great things. Um, I would say like over the next year or so, um, I'm working to do a lot to build awareness about what this work looks like. Um, I think that that piece is critical. Um, We are, we grounded this work in Peace Week. I don't know if you all were part of or had an opportunity to participate, but there's gonna be another one in Peace Week. But um, one of the things that Mayor Dickens, when we first met, he heard me say was that like, 
I really want to start my work in talking about what it means to be peacekeepers and peace ambassadors. And so um, we're going to be doing another Peace Week in October. Oh, and right. yeah, um, I also think that like, you know, we're, we're, we're hoping to fund several organizations locally. We're incubating small grassroots organizations. There's a lot of people who want to be responsive to this work, but don't have the capacity to do it or the infrastructure. And so we're building those organizations. I'm brokering a lot of deals <laughs> with like, you know, with, with funders, with um, people who are interested in supporting organizations. And I'm doing a lot of, um, I'm hoping to build that work out so that those organizations next year will be able to find. We're rolling out two Cure Violence initiatives in um, Southwest Atlanta and in Northwest Atlanta. Those initiatives hopefully will be launched um, in October. We've identified the organizations. We're hoping to just sign contracts soon. Um, but I think that in all of that, like in funding these orgs and funding this work, um, it's really like building out an ecosystem. And that ecosystem is comprised of like healing resources, churches. So we hope to build a clergy council. Um, yeah, yes, I got a yes over there. Um, I think clergy could be a wonderful asset in this work. And there's some really great groups that are doing work with clergy that we're bringing here to the city that are friends from New York to support the build out of what it means to have clergy to be responsive. Um, we're also like, you know, hoping to engage in conversations um, because this is about changing hearts and minds, right? And so that influence around changing hearts and minds oftentimes with the people who, you know, we, us talking to each other, right? So public health is called popular opinion leaders. So we're recruiting popular opinion leaders to, get to a have a room full of popular <laughs> opinion leaders, right? Yeah. To have conversations with each other about like what this means, what this work means, what, it, what does it mean to kind of stem the tide on gun violence? And how do we do that as neighbors? Like how do we do that as not just, you know, like one area of town, like we're all Atlantans, like we all live here. This is all of our community. And so that's the work that, that I'm leading in the next year, building out evaluation, um, I hope to have a robust evaluation measuring is important so that we can say like this is working, you know, so yeah. Amazing. I've gone too long. I apologize. But if someone's got a question, you got to go to that microphone. Neil's got a question and just stay there. Don't, don't sit down if you've got a question. So we yeah, can, yeah. Uh, Mike, when you started talking and I saw this subject, I thought of a person, many of you've heard the name H. Rapp. Brown of a bygone era. Have you ever heard of him? No. Interesting, these younger kids. <laughs> crazy kids. H. H. Rapp Brown made the statement probably 40 years ago, violence is as American as apple pie. There is a value system. And when he said that 40 some years ago, he probably had no idea of what he was saying compared mm -hmm. to the amount of violence. So that's just a backdrop of where we are in this country. It is a value system. I, or is, I'm going to ask you two things. One, is it a value system? And then a separate question, somewhat tangential to that, but how does this organization interface with the police department and what it is doing to try mm -hmm. to prevent violence, this gang task force, and all these kind of mm -hmm. things? So the first thing about HRAP, forget that. How do, you interface, <laughs> how do you interface with the police department and other forces that are attempting to deal 
with yeah. violence as a value system. Yeah, thank you, Nell. Um, no, I don't know HRAP, but I'll, I'll do a Google search right now when I get home. <laughs> um, I have a very close relationship with, our, um, with the chief of um, the city of Atlanta's police department. And um, Chief Sherbaum is, was actually like one of the folks who interviewed me and, um, and was really excited about my role in this position. I think that there is an over-reliance on the police, and I think that like he would be in agreement with us to, to solve this problem, right? Um, we, um, there's like so many different gun violence intervention strategies that are amazing and impactful, that are place-based, that are like people who live in those communities, like a T-Rock being able to talk to a young person and take the hand, take the gun out of the hands of a young person, right? Who can mediate conflict, um, who can, you know, encourage a young person to consider our person. Because I think that we think about gun violence and we think that it's all youth and it's not. Here in Atlanta, 24 to 36 is the age group that mostly is victims and perpetrators. Mm -hmm. But um, I hope to work very strategically with them now and very closely with them. We're, we're getting ready to do, speaking of data, we're getting ready to do a gun violence problem analysis where we're looking at our violence, our homicide data, a very deep dive. We wanna understand networks. We need that information in order for me to decide like what are the strategies moving forward? What, where do I need to be? Who are the groups that I need to be working with? We're doing shooting reviews, and as a part of the shooting reviews, like, you know, usually with a shooting review, you review data of just the, the person who was the, the actual perpetrator, but I wanna know about the victims as well, because I think that there's something that's very telling about who, um, who may have been impacted by this or who may have touched the system. And, and by systems, I mean systems. Because there's a stat that's out that's going around in this gun violence prevention world that I'm in that talks about like when before there's a non-fatal shooting or a homicide, that that person may have touched seven different systems. Mm -hmm. So that means that there's seven different opportunities for grace, seven different opportunities to redirect. And so mm -hmm. I'm hoping to use a lot of the, the data that our police department has um, to develop strategies and to work closely with them on what type of strategies they can implement to um, do call-ins for people who persist in crime um, and to implement a strategy that's called focused deterrence. So yes, I'm working very closely with APD. I do see this being a, a blended approach as opposed to like, you know, non-enforcement enforcement, but us working in tandem. Thank you for your question. really intimidating standing up here. Um, so I feel like I'm missing a really fundamental like picture of what gun violence is. Like as a person of much privilege admittedly and I think I'm not alone in this. Like I've really been insulated from this. And I lived in Kings County for 10 years and I was insulated from it then too. Um, and so I kind of feel like I'm also a parent and the conversation around gun violence like lately has been so focused on mass shootings, which is just not that common. And it feels like, I suspect, it's kind of obscuring the reality of what gun violence is. And so I apologize, but I wonder if you could sort of back way up and like explain 
what is sort of the landscape of gun violence that is actually happening in our city? Yeah. And then if there's time, like if, how can we as people who maybe don't live even near these communities that you're mostly working in, like how can we support your work? So, thank yeah, you. thank you. That's a great question. No, I don't know how to contact um, Terry Cruz. Let's, let's, yeah, let's do that after we finish this session. Not, yeah, we'll do that after. Thank you for your question. Um, so, gun violence um, in Atlanta, last year we had 158 homicides. And um, for every homicide, what you can imagine is there's probably at least two non-fatal injuries, right? So like that number then like triples, like so, I mean. Every day. Yeah, it's underreported. So about 80% of violent injuries. So when I talk about violent injuries, I'm talking about intentional injuries, gunshots, stabbings, assaults, um, even intentional burns. Um, about 80% of them are underreported in that they're, they're seen at, at a level one trauma center or at a hospital, but it's not reported to the police. Um, in 2021, violence became the number one cause of death of all U.S. children. And it has long been the number one cause of death for black adolescents. So it's, it's extremely disproportionate. Um, and what I will say is that, like here in Atlanta, it's happening in pockets. So like the Northwest, I mean, yeah, Northwest, like the Northwest region of Atlanta, Southwest Atlanta, um, Southeast. So like, like that Mechanicsville, like I think of it as kind of like a rainbow in terms of like how it's spreading, right? So if you think about like, um, East Atlanta, kind of spanning over Thomasville, kind of then coming over to like, um, I guess that's like the Mechanicsville area, like kind of central to the city, but east of the city. Um, Southwest Atlanta, so like MLK corridor, it's happening a lot over there. And it's, it's prevalent, it's prevalent, it's predictable, which means it's also preventable. Right? So like we, um, and it's, it drives this despair, it's driven by disparities. So like where we're seeing, um, I think that AJC recently did an article about dangerous dwellings, right? These dangerous dwellings, these communities where there's dangerous dwellings are also seeing like a real spike in, in gun violence, but it's the conditions. It's the conditions that's really fueling that. And so I think that, um, that's something for us to consider. And I think that you, your question was um, what ways or how do, how do you talk about it? Um, I think you talk about it from a space where like, I mean, as a mom, I like try to help my kids understand that like, um, you know, there's, that, that we, one, need to be careful about judgment and that we need to try to like seek to understand and 
And so I talk about root causes with them. I talk very plainly about like how this happens disproportionately in different communities and the things that insulate us from these conditions and these spaces are these things, are things like education and that, we, that mommy has had access to opportunities. Um, it's a hard conversation to have. And if I may just share, like we, I lost my, my nephew to gun violence. January, December, I'm sorry, Christmas Day 2020. And he was 14. He went to Walgreens behind some, running behind cousins who were going to Walgreens because he wanted a candy bar. And it was random. And, um, and we, we have never been able to um, really talk about, like up to that, I was never really able to talk with my daughter about like why I did what I did in terms of my work. Um, but, you know, like for so many black and brown children, like this becomes reality no matter like what the distance is. And I think that it's becoming a reality for like Americans, no matter like what the distance is from those conditions, right? Or from like our privilege, like we're watching mass shootings happen. And I think we, we do have to have like real conversations about like the root causes of this. And um, it means that, you know, like some different values, talk, speaking boldly and bravely to like what we're seeing and, um, and being able to let them, and, and to let them know that like, you know, we do what we can to protect them, but there's, there is this whole big world out there and that's the reality of it. And that we hope that, that you know, like we, we, we pray a prayer of protection and that that prayer will keep us, and that we have to have faith. But I do think that is one of those things that we have to speak truth to, so. Thank you, Jukal. Um, some of us have to get ready for the next service. Yeah. I'm gonna put Ann Kramer in charge of making sure that Jukal gets to wherever she needs to be next. <laughs> um, can you help me thank Jukal Clemens for being with us this Thank time. you. And don't worry, she'll be back. There's plenty, there's a lot more to talk about. You know, one of the principles I've been taught is um, we don't get to be safer than the most vulnerable people in our communities. And that is a painful, oh, wow. painful reality. Um, I think that is sitting closer to a lot of us these days. So thank you so thank much. Thank you. Thanks for having me, thank Reverend you. Winnie.